Missouri House Speaker Elijah Harr is leaving the General Assembly's lower chamber due to term limits. But in the eight years he served, the Springfield Republican dealt with some big challenges and unprecedented crisis. And he has a lot to say about how he made it through it all. Har joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me uh, is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter. Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us from his office in Jefferson City, the Speaker of the Missouri House. Elijah Har. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. We did have you on earlier this year to talk about uh, the session in the era of COVID-19, but we're going to take a broader look at uh, your your legislative career, some of the lessons that you learned during your speakership, some of the successes and challenges, and also uh, looking a little forward about elections, since that's a topic that you have been uh, interested in as an attorney. Um, I was telling you before we press record, uh, since you were elected in 2012, everybody who was elected in 2012 and served the full, full eight years have, have had to experience the following in the legislature. Um, they had to experience the Ferguson uh, protest movement. Uh, a House Speaker resigned, John Deal. Tom Schweik committed suicide. There was the Republican takeover in 2016. There was the near impeachment of a governor in 2018. Um, and then this year, the, the COVID-19 pandemic completely upended the legislative session and state government. After uh, listing all of that, are, are you just exhausted thinking about having gone through all of that over the last eight years? Some people say the, uh, the, the days are long, but the years are short. Our days were exceptionally long. Um, but I remember on our freshman tour in December of 2012, one of my colleagues who served all eight years with me, Tim Remley, he had a stroke on the freshman tour. And we used to have this um, running discussion among our class that that sort of foretold how hard the next eight years were going to be. There, there was just curveballs left and right. So, yeah, it's been it's been quite the wild ride. Um, but as I tell everybody, I'm as fortunate. My experience in the Capitol has been as good as it could have possibly have been. Um, and everybody should should everybody should at one point in their life run for some sort of elective office. If nothing else, you learn your community and your neighbors in a way you never thought you would. I just wanted to ask you what has been like what what would you consider your biggest success story as Speaker of the House? Um, in the eight years that I worked here, I think that carry on the, the 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 tax cut we did in 2018 was was my personal. One um, that that was doing that in the middle of obviously the 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 impeachment process um, was a challenge to do. Um, so me personally, I think that one was 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 the most interesting, exciting legislative victory I had. But as Speaker of the House, it's funny you have all these grandiose notions of the bills you're going to pass, and I think we passed a, a significant amount of them 
whether it was the, the pro-life bill 126, whether it was the infrastructure and transportation bills, um, the bonding packages. But frankly, the thing I think we'll always remember when I was speaker was handling the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, we were February of this year, we just started to hear about it. And I was really fortunate because my chief of staff, his father-in-law is a, a doctor at MassGen. And so he was one early on that said, this is going to disrupt everything and we need to be prepared for it. And so before we even had a positive case of COVID-19 in Missouri, we put together the committee on um, disease here in the state. We asked Dr. Don, John Patterson, the representative from, from the Kansas City area to head it up. We were having hearings before there was a positive case in the state. So we were sort of ahead of the curve, at least from the house perspective on moving staff home and having them work remotely, um, instituting protocols within the Capitol before anybody else was doing it. And I think if you look, we've had all very, very few of our representatives have tested positive as far as I can tell. None have tested positive from an interaction they had within the Capitol. And I think a lot of that is just the foresight of the staff here, whether it was Dana, the chief clerk, or, or Kenny, my chief of staff, getting on top of this thing early. Um, you know, the unit or Mississippi, they, they came in for a special session to, to change their state flag, ended up having nearly two thirds of their legislature get COVID while they were in session. We've had, I think, less than 10, maybe even less than five, and none did luckily traceable to work in the building. So I think that's a credit to. Um, the, the work that the, the staff here has done in, in building a, a safe environment for us to continue to do the people's work. If there's anything we'll, I think will be remembered for, it's sort of carrying on the, the process during a, a, a sort of a pandemic that none of us really knew how to handle. I want to give a shout out to Dana just because I work with her and we need it in this podcast. I love Dana. She is awesome. Um, another question I had um, since you are termed here. We just recently had Representative Kip Kendrick on a politically speaking episode, and he talked a lot about how his decision to leave office was based on term limits, and he he didn't necessarily think that eight years was long enough. I wanted to get your perspective on another side of the aisle, but you're the Speaker of the House. Do you feel like you had a good run in the State House? Do you wish you could have more? Um, what's your take on that? So what I would always say is that term limits would be far more successful if everyone was term limited. So if the lobbyists and the bureaucracy had the same term limits the legislative branch did, we would have a much more balanced um, ability to, to, to move legislation. Unfortunately, when the, when the lobbyists can be here for 30 years and they can, if, you, if you're gonna kill something of theirs, they're gonna put it in the drawer for eight years and then they'll trot it back out. It creates a position of imbalance of power that we deal with. and. Um, you know, I think there is a scenario where term limits show some value, but I think within a, a building like this, when you operate constantly at a, a um, you have less knowledge base than the people that you are maybe trying to go up against and reform, I think it puts us at a position of disadvantage. And, and I don't think it's the most helpful thing for the state to continue to pass good legislation when our legislators are gonna be constantly at a knowledge imbalance when they go up against the lobbyists and the bureaucracy. Well, and, and Jacqueline and I often mention that we're both from Illinois. Um, I'm very proud of that fact, Jacqueline is too. One of the things I don't think we're super proud of though is that the Speaker of the Illinois House, Michael Madigan, has been Speaker since both of us, before both of us were born, except for a two year stretch. And I definitely understand the argument against against term limits that it drains institutional knowledge and it, it it ushers people out of the legislature too soon. 
But just the fact that the the leader of the Illinois House has been there for 30 plus years seems a little odd and unseemly and has is probably the best argument for term limits. Like what do you what do you make of uh are, are, what do you make of that particular example? You know, obviously, the, I think there's going to be bad apples on either side of this. Um, and I think there's going to be good apples on either side of this. And I think you can look through history and there's leaders of, of whether it's uh, states or other countries that have been in office for um, decades that have been extraordinarily good leaders or there at a time when we needed them to be there longer than an arbitrary number. Um, at the same time, you're going to have bad apples that, that outlive their uh, effective or useful usefulness and especially have figured out a way to abuse the system such that they stay in their office longer than, than really they should. Um, I'm a big fan of believing that the people are the ultimate term limit on anyone. Uh, I know the Federalists in the Federalist Papers, they considered and expressly rejected the idea of putting term limits in the Constitution. Uh, the idea of the president serving only two terms really started because George Washington voluntarily chose not to run again. But um, frankly, I, I, I think there's a, a big dis debate that's an intellectual debate of, do we believe that our presidents have been that much better than our Congresses because of term limits? And I don't know that there's an answer to that. But in my mind, I think you've got just as many bad presidents if you've had bad congressionals or bad senators i'm not sure that term limits has has made made that position any better than than it would have been otherwise do you feel if you weren't term limited that you would have like more life left in you i mean that's a weird way of putting it but i mean do you wish you had more time to be in the house to pass meaningful legislation here's the thing and, and just being totally honest if it weren't for term limits, I would not have gotten elected as young as I did, because the, the, the people that were, were elected at the time, they could have continued to run for election. I wouldn't have had the chance to be here as, as young as I, I am. And so uh, I will never say that I, I wish they didn't have term limits because I'd like to serve here longer. Um, I do love the policy give and take. But as everybody who knows me or follows me on social media knows, I've got four kids that are nine and under. And the opportunity to pick them up from school every day and drop them off the next morning is it's a pretty good incentive to, to be ready to go home. And if there weren't term limits, obviously I'd, I'd want to take the opportunity to be up here and continue to effectuate public policy. The arbitrary of this though, is that there's a really good upside that starting on January 5th, when, when the new speaker is sworn in, I'll spend every night at home with my kids. And that there's a lot, lot to be said for that. I actually want to touch on that. Um, because one of the things that I've mentioned a number of times is I, I just can't really imagine scenarios where uh, people with children who make, I don't know, between thirty and $60,000 a year would ever consider running for office just because they can't take the, the income. Like you only you make $35,000 a year plus per diem as a legislator. So somebody who's making forty or $50,000 a year is not going to take that pay cut. The other thing too is like it has to be a real a real amount of difficulty to be in Jefferson City for 5 months out of the year and be away from your small children all the time. Like how do you like how do you manage that and what do you make of the fact that like the legislature is inherently discriminating against people who are working class or middle class and and don't have flexible schedules? Like, like you do as an attorney, basically. Well, and you're absolutely right. From the perspective of job, it, it you almost have to be either 
retired, self-employed, or or a stay at home in order to to make this schedule work. It's very difficult to find employers that are willing to allow you to leave for five months. On a personal note, you're absolutely right. People with young children, it's extraordinarily challenging for them to do. Um, you know, I've got four kids, and and I'm a single dad, and I have them the bulk of the time, and the ability to balance out. Um, the time that I'm in Jefferson City, obviously they're in school during the days, but at night I work a lot with, you know, my parents have been very involved in picking them up from school. Um, we're really fortunate because of modern technology, I can FaceTime them and I basically see them every day. Those are opportunities they'll never have. But yeah, it's an incredibly challenging position uh, for people to consider running for if they have a, a traditional job that's nine to five, five days a week, and if they have children that that are young enough that that to try to figure out how to how to make that work is is an extraordinarily a big challenge. Um, you know, one of the things that we looked at early on in my speakership that we were not able to make happen was to see if there was a way that we could provide childcare for legislators, such that if you wanted to bring your children with you, that there was a place to to, to watch them. We we looked at there's at least one other state that has a pilot program going for that, and we tried to f- consider if that was a thing we could do. We got to a position where we didn't think we could make it happen here. Um, and then, I, you know, I'm a natural optimist, so my best positive spin on COVID, we lost seven, eight weeks of our legislative session this spring, but it happened to be the seven or eight weeks my kids were going to be out of school. So I got to spend seven or eight weeks, just me and my kids at my house. That, that was sort of a fun time and opportunity I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so, um, yeah, it presents real challenges. And I can tell you back in 2017 and 18, when I was running around the state trying to recruit people to run for office, the first two things they brought up were how will I do with my job and how will I do with my kids? And it presents a barrier to a lot of these, um, the people, the state to consider running for office that, that, that maybe you don't have the best cross section of Missourians sitting on the floor because you don't have the most diverse group because you can't, they, they can't figure out a way to, to overcome those barriers. Would journalists be able to use the capital childcare? You know, that the idea that we, we were trying to work around was, if we could find childcare that had up to, you know, 20 spots per week for four days, and it would sort of operate on a first come first serve basis, but sort of a rotating lottery where if you wanted to bring your kids up the second and sixth week, and maybe the ninth week or something like that, that those weeks you'd have a high lottery. And then basically we get everybody the chance to have, bring their kids to the, to the capital. They could see them every night and every morning and then come here and do their work. Like I said, we got to a place where we couldn't figure out how to make it work financially. Um, you know, obviously, um, we, we came up with a couple of different ideas and we couldn't, couldn't figure it out. But it's something that I think would be you look at Fortune 500 companies and, and, and that is the, the new the, the sort of the new wave of recruitment is, hey, we're going to provide you child care. Well, maybe on site. That's the way they market and, and attract people to the job. And I think the legislature would be wise to do something similar. Yeah. Before we go to break, like. Uh, but let, let's actually parlay this whole thing into policy. Like, if there's anything that COVID-19 has exposed, it's just how porous and unsupported a lot of child care providers are. You're not going to be in the legislature, but it does seem like this crisis provides like an impetus to maybe your colleagues in the future to provide some sort of funding stream or assistance yeah, and like you said, COVID sort of presents a different issue set for people to consider as, as far as issues that that are on their on the the agenda more because of, of dealing with something like this. But yeah, I think obviously one of the biggest challenges people have, even when it comes to just having a job, is 
knowing knowing like where who's going to watch their children and how they're going to do that in a in a safe manner and when schools close or during a pandemic like we have when a when when your daycare suddenly says hey we've had it we've had a positive case so the kids are coming home for a week that makes it impossible for a lot of people to continue to work at a traditional job and i mean figuring out a way to handle childcare trickles down into figuring out a way to make our economy run more smoothly so yeah that's something i think we should always keep sort of on the uh, on the how do, we, how do we make sure that, that people in our society have a way to get to work? And a big part of that is them having safe and, and reasonable childcare. We'll be right back after this quick break with House Speaker Elijah Har. And we're back on Politically Speaking with House Speaker Elijah Har. I, I mentioned on the outset that you dealt with a lot of what I would consider crisis-like events, both inside and outside uh, the legislature. I, I'd be interested to hear like what you feel like uh, of those things I mentioned, or maybe things I didn't mention. What was like the, the biggest challenge that you faced? And let's let's take COVID nineteen out of the equation since we've talked about that a lot. Besides COVID nineteen, what was the biggest crisis challenge you faced as a legislator? You know, when I served as pro tem, we obviously went through the 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 Eric Greitens saga, and that was a, a an extraordinarily challenging time for the House. Uh, for the caucus, the Republican caucus, it is a very uncomfortable position where you have to uh, sit in judgment of somebody in your own party. There's obviously a lot of very diverse opinions within the caucus as to um, what to do about that. And I was in a supportive role as pro tem. Todd the, Richardson, the former speaker, um, was the guy who had to carry the brunt of that. And I, I will say, and I think this is unanimous among the House, Todd probably handled it as well as anybody could have handled it with 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 grace and class and trying to get to a, a just outcome but i think that was probably as challenging a time as i can remember in the general assembly because you overlaid all the issues that were going on with that and we had weekly and sometimes daily news stories breaking on it new information coming to light or just dealing with the, the hearings within the capitol and you had to overlay that with trying to pass policy issues. And, and in the end, we had an extraordinarily successful policy session during that year. We test, you know, the, the, the largest tax cut in state history, a, a really big energy redevelopment plan. We did a ton of stuff policy-wise, all while having the, the special investigation committee that was meeting. We were hustling or bringing witnesses into the building. We were trying to um, no offense to the media, but trying to get witnesses in without the media knowing who they were, because a lot of them did not want to be publicly identified in the case. Um, and so we, it was a very big challenge to keep confidentiality going during that period of time. And, you know, I had to sit in this office more, more hours than I can count watching Todd have to transition back and forth between handling of that case, policy agendas, dealing with the Senate, um, dealing with, I watched him when his phone would ring and it would be the, the governor himself calling to try to talk about this stuff or be national figures reaching out to Todd and out trying to sway it one way or the other. That is probably as a challenging a session as I can remember um, that, you know, seeing someone deal with um, just sitting here all the time. And I've said it before. Uh, I go to other states. I tell people about the situation that year. And it's it, it's sort of unbelievable when you tell people it sounds more like a movie and it should be a movie because the, the stuff that we went through and just the stories that came out of that are, are almost impossible to leave a real life. I was texting with somebody uh, the other day about the fact that uh, Jason Smith, who's a congressman 
former House member and Todd Richardson ran against each other for that 8th district seat. And uh, I said something along the lines of, I thought Jason Smith got the better end of that deal because uh, not only is he now like extremely powerful, even though he's only 40 years old, but even though Todd Richardson got to be speaker, he got he had to be speaker earlier than he expected because John Deal resigned and then had to deal with one of the biggest crises in the state's history in his last year. Uh, I can't really imagine having to, to deal with that. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for former Speaker Richardson to be able to come out of that still wanting to do, be in public service since he is the Medicaid uh, director now. Todd. Todd. Todd is an extraordinarily talented person and watching him handle that, like like I said, it presents a very different set of, of challenging circumstances to a situation like COVID, which is challenging in and of itself. But, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of caucus members that, that wanted Todd to do one thing or the other and and thought he he owed it to the state or to the party to, to handle it in, in certain ways. And Todd always focused on, you know, there's, there's going to be a, a truth that we have to find. And it's our job to do that. And Todd always told me something that, that has always stuck with me, which half the people will always dislike whatever bill you pass or leg legislation you pass or decision you get to. But he's like, the goal is to have as many people trust the process as possible. And Todd was really good about people trusting the process. He was very open about this is how we're going to handle something. This is what we're going to do. And everybody's going to know what we're going to do. And so even if you disagree to the result we get to, you're going to everybody's going to have their appropriate input. And it's something that I've tried to keep going. And, and I, I think the house has, has tried, you know, we, we've gone from, from essentially one, one camera in the, um, on the house floor to now six high definition cameras on the house floor. We're recording and live stream all of our committee hearings. Um, we, we have gotten to a place where everybody in the state can watch every single thing that we do all the time. And I think that sort of sunshine, stem from the good government practice that Todd wanted to implement and we've been able to sort of expand upon. Yes, especially in COVID times, I totally appreciated um, having the live streams available because I did not want to go into the Capitol or bring my kids there. Um, I want to switch topics just a bit um, and talk about the special legislative session, the first one that kind of abrupted after the governor had um, called to expand the legislation to allow the attorney general to prosecute murder cases in St. Louis. This came as a shock to me personally um, and talking to some Democrats, they were also shocked by it. I assumed that that was a difficult call because the Senate did push through that legislation there towards the end. So I just wanted your take on that. What prompted that decision? How did that come about? And, and again, yeah, expand on how that was, a, if it was a challenge. So at the beginning of the special session on, on crime, um, we, we agree with a, the, some of the governor's uh, proposals, the, the primary one being how we handled um, police officers in St. Louis and, and their residency. That, that to me was always sort of the cornerstone of that session. And I think the House and the Senate, the governor, we worked to, to get that portion done. Uh, there was one portion that gave me some pretty significant heartburn, which was um, changing how we prosecute juveniles. Um, and so we made a decision pretty early on in the House. We we didn't want to move that that piece of the legislation. But, you know, we we had gotten to a point where we thought we we sort of had a path going forward. Uh, the governor expanded the call um, while the bill was was in the Senate. Um, we'd already passed sort of a, a House version. And so when it was coming back and the Senate was going to take up the expanded call, we had several co conference calls with our caucus and had a a real 
split in the caucus as to the, the, the expanded call to the point that we had a lot of caucus members that, that did not want to proceed or that, that had heartburn with, with one or two parts of, of the, the, the respite. And so by the time we got back, we had passed the, the what I thought was the, the, the signature piece that, that changing the residency laws for St. Louis police officers. We'd, we'd funded the witness protection fund. I thought those were the two biggest pieces and I, I, I commend Governor Parson and the Senate for moving those. We did not have an agreement among the caucus on the rest of the pieces. And so we made the decision to go ahead and adjourn and not take up the rest of it. You know, I think outside the building, there was a, a lot of surprise when we did that. Um, we told the Senate and we told the executive branch prior to, to going out on the House floor and doing that. We gave them a heads up. We're going to do it. And obviously they were frustrated because they've done a lot of work to get it to a place where it was at. But we did not have the caucus support to, to continue. And so instead of putting caucus members through a, a fairly arduous debate and difficult vote that I don't know whether or not would have been positive, we as a leadership team made the decision we had passed the two big signature pieces that, that we thought were important, the governor thought was important, and that was the extent of the work we, we felt we needed to do. And so we went out, we adjourned signee die um, on that special session. And like I said, I think we got the, 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 the two signature pieces done. How upset were the governor and the attorney general that you didn't get the uh, concurrent jurisdiction done? You know, here's the thing. The, the governor's always been really good to work with. And um, Obviously, they were, you know, his staff was was somewhat frustrated when we first informed them what we were going to do. Um, but we've maintained a really good working relationship with them. Obviously, we, we had to, again, with the budget special session coming up, um, we worked with them again on trying to get in a position on the COVID liability special session and, and working out those issues. Um, you know, his staff in particular, Jeff Earl and Robert Nodell, have, have been really good friends of mine and, and do an incredibly good job for him. And... Yeah, of course, they did put a lot of work into it um, to try to get it done, and especially out of the Senate. Um, so there was there was some short term frustration. But, hey, uh, Caleb Rowden, the Senate Majority Leader, is a good friend of mine. He does a great job over there. Um, we try to give him the heads up. We you know, and I told them candidly before they 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 decided to pre to PQ the um, the filibuster. I didn't know if we were going to be able to take it up in the House. Um, and so you know, we had those conversations, we made the decisions, and we continued to work together on the budget special, on the on the COVID liability special, and and I think those relationships will continue. Like I said, I have nothing but the the, the best respect for, for for Jeff Earl and Robert Nudell. They did so much work on those special sessions and do a really great job for the governor. I really like this conversation, and I think it's important for people who listen to this podcast who may not be so insider baseball like Jason or I when you're talking about these conversations that you're having amongst your caucus, amongst other leadership in, in, you know, in the Senate or with the governor's staff, I wonder if you could expand on that. Is that does that happen with every piece of legislation, only the big stuff? I, I just, I really think that that's important for people to know the process and kind of look behind the curtain. So it just depends. Um, you know, I have a lot of conversations. I have some with the governor directly, but I have a lot of conversations with, with, like I said, Robert Nodell is deputy chief of staff, Jeff Earl, um, his legislative liaison. I have, I have very regular conversations with them. Um, every, every piece of legislation, I have a pretty strong inner circle with my staff. Um, my chief of staff, Kenny Ross, Julie Baker, our legal counsel, um, Ryan Nonamaker and Eric Angleby. We sit around and every single bill that we refer in the house, we, we discuss on a round table when we do bill referrals. Um, I don't know how other speakers do it, but we had a pretty thorough vetting process. 
I mean, we would literally sit around a table. If I turn my camera around this table here and we would, we would pick our bills and then we'd go person by person on one bill. They really liked that week, one bill they really didn't like that week. What were the reasons, what we should do with it. And then as we got to some of those bigger signature pieces of legislation, I can tell you some of the stuff that we passed, not every member of my staff thought was a great bill. And some of the stuff that we did, that we chose, that I chose not to take up, they thought were really good. When we were doing something that the Senate had had gone to extraordinary lengths to, to, to pass or to get over to us or something the governor was a priority of his, we tried as much as possible to bring his people in on those conversations. And that was a hard conversation to have because I like those people. I knew they'd done a lot of work on it. Um, but I also felt that it was, it was a good idea. Uh, and frankly, the way everybody should do business to tell them up front now, it's not like I called called them a week out and said, if this comes out, we're never going to take it up. We decided you know, maybe the day before the morning of that, that we didn't think we had the caucus votes to take it up. And so we said, let's reach out immediately and let them know. Um, and they handled it like gentlemen. And, um, you know, we continue to have a good working relationship. But, you know, that's that's the thing. It's you're right, Jacqueline. From an outsider perspective, we think about bills and we think about sort of the macros. But this is a personal relationship building, and those relationships matter than any more than anything else in here. And so, you are going to disagree, and there are going to be times you fight. But those people, they 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 fundamentally want the same things we do. As everybody wants, they want good jobs, they want better streets and strong schools. We disagree sometimes how to get from here to there, but but the personal relationships matter a lot. And if if every one of these political or policy disagreements become personal, you sort of lose the ability to function as a, as a government. So according to your Wikipedia page, you are only 38 years old uh, to, go, to go with uh, our discussion about term limits. Um, you did not run for anything this year, which probably was a big relief that you didn't have to, you didn't have to lead a legislative chamber during a pandemic and run for statewide office, although there was nothing for you to run for for statewide office since they were all people already in office. Uh, what, what's next for you politically? Uh, the chatter that I've heard as far as like one of your next steps is if the 7th district seat, which is held by Billy Long, becomes vacant, you would probably be a prime contender for that. Um, but I'm sure that you may not want to run for anything and just may want to be a lawyer and a dad for the, the foreseeable future. Uh, please break some news on the show and talk about how you're going to run for something. Please. I'm desperate for news right now. When I figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up, I'll let everybody else know. But um, Robin Voss, who's a speaker of the house in Wisconsin, they don't have term limits there, but um, he taught a new speaker orientation when I first got elected and I went to it. And he, he said, to everybody's like, there's two ways to handle being Speaker of the House. And he's like, they're, they're not wrong or right, they're just different. One is to treat Speaker of the House as, as sort of, I'm gonna be Speaker and then I'm gonna run for something else. And the other is to treat Speaker of the House as the last political job you're ever gonna have. And he's like, I'm not saying one is, is better than the other, but he said, you will treat the position differently depending on how you view it. Um, I made a pretty strong decision after hearing that, that I did not wanna be a candidate in 2020 because I didn't wanna make any decisions as Speaker of the House, based on me trying to run for another office at the time. And so um, it, it helped, like you said, uh, every statewide office in 2020 was held by a Republican. They're running for re-election. It was great to support that ticket as they as they did that. And I've got a lot of really good friends that are in statewide office. Scott Fitzpatrick, the current treasurer, we got elected to the state house together and we've been really good friends. And, and he, you know, to see him get elected to state treasurer was was a great thing. But 
I, I will say this. I love policy and I love politics. And I am really looking forward to spending um, the, the next year or two home with my kids um, before I have to make a decision about if there's another race to be run. I don't know if there is or, or, or when that would happen. Um, but I also, um, Joe Strauss, who used to be the Speaker of the House down in Texas, um, he was, I went and had brunch with him a few months ago. And I, he asked me, he's like, what's next? And I, I said, I was like, I'm, I'm going to go back on the practice law. I've got kids at home. I'm excited for that. But I am interested if there's another run down the road. And he's like, well, I just like, you're 38. He said, I didn't run for state rep until I was 48. And I became speaker at 52. He's like, you don't have to be in a hurry for anything to happen. You, you know, you don't get the chance to, to see your kids every day. Um, at, if you are in elective office. So he's like, take this opportunity to enjoy being home. And he's like, the next opportunity will present itself when, when the timing's right. And so, you know, if, if there's never another run in my future, I've had the most extraordinary eight years I could, I could imagine. And if there is another run in the future, the timing will be right when that run presents itself. Right now, the timing's right for me to go home, be a dad and be an attorney and sort of watch all of this from the outside. And I'm excited to do that. Well, Mr. Speaker, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Uh, as Jacqueline said, this went in some really great directions, which I was really glad that we could talk about some of the rigors and sacrifices of legislative service. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can hear my son, Declan, in the background as well. Uh, Jacqueline, how can, you, uh, how can we follow you on Twitter? Driscoll NPR. Please, please name off the 10 Twitter accounts that you have, which has become a running gag whenever you're on the show. I have consolidated all of my Twitter accounts to simply one at Elijah Har. I used to have, I used to try to have a, a, a legislative one and a personal one. And then I even tried tweeting in Spanish for a while. And at some point I decided that, uh, um, this was, it was too much for even me to keep up with. And I consolidated it all to one. So it's only at Elijah Har. It's a shame the Spanish one is gone. Those were some great times. Thank you very much. So long.